tonight on what it looks like to follow Jesus and what gets in the way of us following Jesus sometimes. And some of you will hear this as people who know Jesus. You love him, you know he loves you. Uh, and so you're going to hear this uh, maybe as, a, as an encouragement to walking with him. Maybe a mid-course correction for you. Uh, and others of you don't maybe know Jesus or you don't know if you know him. Kind of an ambiguous relationship or it's complicated. And, and you might hear this as a preview of what walking with Jesus looks like, but also maybe a little bit of a push to consider what you're following now. Uh, because Jesus calls us uh, to take up our cross and follow him, pour out our lives in service to him, but so do all of the other masters in our lives. And so if you don't know Jesus, uh, perhaps this will be a sermon where you can consider what are you pouring out your life towards? And is it giving you resurrection in return or just a black hole with nothing? Uh, and so that's the passage. There's three points, really simple. Um, whatever we're following is costing us our lives. That's pretty obvious. Uh, we'll unpack that in a minute. Uh, number two, we most effortlessly follow what we most deeply love. The easiest things for us to follow and slide into are the things we love the most. And number three, uh, following Jesus means going where he's going. Sounds pretty simple, huh? Let's get into it. Go ahead and uh, rise up because this is the part of the sermon that is infallible. And all powerful. This is uh, Luke 9, verse 51 through 62. And this is uh, picking up right after Jesus is kind of revealed in all of his glory and his majesty. And it says this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and they entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, to the, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what Morgan said earlier is the true confession of all of our hearts. Uh, even hearing the word discipleship or hearing the phrase following Jesus uh, can bring back before our eyes how poorly we do that. Jesus, my prayer is simple and deep and desperate tonight. Uh, would you please uh, come And minister to our hearts, minister to our eyes, to our ears, that we can see you as you are, see uh, how committed you are to us before you ever say the first word about us being committed to you. Uh, Jesus, we need this, and left up to ourselves, left up to me as a teacher, we will all miss it. But would you come and disciple us? Would you come and lead us tonight? Uh, We ask this in your name and for your sake, that you would be pleased. Amen. All right. Thanks for standing up. You can take a seat. So 
So every number has a story attached to it. Numbers tell a story, kind of like this number. This past year and every year for the past couple of years, more than 3 billion hours of people playing uh, video games. Uh, And the question is, what kind of story does that tell? Here's some other stats I heard in a TED Talk, if you've seen those on YouTube. These are some of the other stats the speaker threw out. He said, uh, more than 500 million people across the globe spend at least an hour a day. Uh-oh, guys, do you want to know what the percentage of guys are who, uh, who play video games regularly? Any guesses? We're in the 90s. 99. And this surprised me. 94% of girls also play video games regularly uh, in America. And the TED Talk guy uh, reported these numbers. He said the average person in America racks up 10,000 hours of uh, playing video games. And this could be anything from like Candy Crush on your phone to War of Warcraft or whatever else. Um, But the average person racks up, the average gamer racks up 10,000 hours of gaming by the time they're age 21. Now, to give you a sense of comparison, 10,000 hours is how many hours we're in the classroom from 6th grade to 12th grade. Middle school and high school. And so by the time we're 21, about getting ready to graduate college, we, uh, the average American gamer has spent as much time playing video games as they have in kind of compulsory education from middle school all the way through high school. And again, the question is, what story do those numbers tell? If you had to attach a narrative or an interpretation to that, what story does that tell? And I'm not about to begin a rant of like, oh, kids these days in the video games. That's not the point. Video games aren't evil. Uh, They're they're neutral. Anna and I are uh, going to this financial peace uh, thing at um, at the church uh, that we go to. And um, Dave Ramsey, you probably heard of him. He was talking about money's not evil and it's not good. It's neutral. It's what our hearts do with money, which is where we get into trouble. You can either, like money's like a brick. It's neutral. And video games are like a brick. You can either take the brick and throw it through a glass window and bring destruction, or you can take a brick and build a house with it. It's, it. It depends on what our hearts do with that. And that's what I'm more interested in bringing up the video game thing. And, and maybe you're not into video games. I've, you know, the last thing I had was Atari. And so, like, I'm not, uh, I, had to, I had to Google a few game names so I wouldn't uh, mention, like, Pitfall or something. And, uh, and people are like, what the heck is that? But, but maybe, it's, um, maybe it's binging on Netflix series or, or some other series. Anna was telling me... Um, House of Cards was released about two or three weeks ago on Netflix. And if you don't know about House of Cards, it's the first Netflix exclusive series. They made it just for Netflix to kind of get in the business of of, uh, doing everything that all the big movie companies are doing. And if you watch all of 13 episodes of the season, they release them all at once. If you watch all of them straight through, nonstop, it's like 14 hours. And they came out with a news article about... Uh, the next day that said someone in America, hopefully not one of you, someone in America had watched the entire series in 14 hours and three minutes. And so you do the math. Over a 14-hour period, they had three minutes where uh, House of Cards wasn't going. I don't want to know what, that, what their bathroom breaks looked like with that amount of time given to that. But the point of that is, like, last year, the, the second contender for the, the word of the year in the Oxford Dictionary was binge-watching. It lost out to selfie. But binge-watching... <laughs> It's, just, it's a new phenomenon. They, they just coined a new word for it. And my, again, the point is, what is it about uh, people these days, myself included, who's already finished the House of Cards series, what is it about people today, <laughs> this exponential increase 
in virtual reality, which I'm obviously including movies in that, TV, video games, uh, gossip magazines or blogs or websites, whatever, little escapes from the real world to go hang out in a virtual world where we have uh, virtual lives and kind of virtually enjoy uh, the real life. I think the reason why, here's my theory, is that the real world is actually pretty scary and also pretty boring, or at least our perception of it is. Uh, and so it's just it's not exciting enough. It's not high definition enough. And it's not electric enough. And so we retreat out of it into a world where it's a little bit more exciting. We have a clear purpose, a clear mission. When you're playing Call of Duty or you're watching through The Walking Dead or something, you have a mission. If you're watching it on TV, you're sharing the mission of the people in there in the show. But if it's something like a game or whatever else, it's like, you're the mission. It's you and your buddies defeating the enemy and trying to reach the next level. And you have virtual accomplishment. Stephen and I were talking about this the other day. Virtual accomplishment. Virtual camaraderie. Virtual, uh, virtual joy. <laughs> and you're living a virtual life. Uh, and it's all, I think, because we can't see. We don't have a clear sense, a compelling sense of a mission or a purpose for our lives in the real world. And so the technology can't keep up with our hearts. Every time Apple puts out the iPhone 4, it's another year or so, and the iPhone 5 has to come out because we're bored with the 4. Or the next app has to come out. Who plays Angry Birds anymore? <laughs> it's on to the next thing. We're bored with that. We need a new... Mi- I'm sorry for those of you who do. I just completely threw you under the bus. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's like as soon as that thing... It kind of it glosses over and we're on to the next thing. We need something compelling, exciting, clear, because I think we lack a clear sense of our purpose and our mission in the real world, in the real life. And if you know the purpose of a human being, this is an odd thing for you. Because if you were here last fall, we talked about kind of God's story and our story. Well, God's story begins with his intention, his agenda, his purpose for human beings, for you. And at the center of that purpose was mission like a charge-the-hill kind of mission. You remember what it was? It was to take Eden and expand it out to the four corners of the earth until every square inch was covered with the glory of God. Men and women living in perfect harmony with God, just as reflectors. You remember the little uh, solar panels, just living off of him, reflecting him to the rest of the creation. And that, that was a job. It was a calling. It was a commission. Go out, just like the Great Commission. Go out. And so if you know that that's, the, that's my purpose, that's the purpose of a human being, then hearing all those stats about House of Cards or all those stats about gaming and everything else might sound a little bit odd to us because it doesn't seem to fit the mission uh, that we were made for um, and, and our inclination to kind of turn back to, uh, to virtual reality. Now, here's the thing. To the extent that we're blind to what Jesus is up to in the world today, we will, we will all be kind of pulled towards, gravitationally pulled towards or float with the current towards virtual realities. That's maybe a modern term. Uh, I don't know. If our hearts are using these things in a bad way where they kind of get elevated and they become our master, then you could say virtual reality is kind of like idolatry. I'm not saying all of these things are idolatry. Don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm saying what does our heart do with them? If our heart is looking at those things as an escape to a more exciting life where we have a clear mission. And my mission is to, to kill the Russians on the Call of Duty game with my other buddies or whatever. 
uh, because we're so blind to God's mission and blind to the excitement of that, we're just bored by it. We're like, okay, Jesus is kind of like building a kingdom. I don't know what that really means. He's kind of wanting people to repent and believe. Boring. This is awesome. To the extent that we're blind to Jesus' mission, we're going to be pulled towards those other things. And here's the rub, and it's the first point in your outline, is that whatever we're following is costing us our lives already. Here's why I think this is a, this is a point that comes from the passage. And, and in a second, we're going to dive back into the, the actual passage and kind of point out a few things. But here's, uh, here's the point. This is really obvious stuff. You love playing guitar. You want to master the guitar. You have to pour out your life into that endeavor. And you don't get those hours back, do you? And that's a good thing. It's the sacrifice of the love. It's a sacrifice uh, for, the, for the goal, right? There's a girl or a guy you want to be around. You have to sacrifice those hours. You don't get them back. You have to pour your life out to follow another thing. Here's my question. Morgan touched on this in his prayer. And I think everyone in the room was like, yes. When it comes to following Jesus, walking with him, kind of orienting our lives and saying, I trust you. I love you. I'm on board with where you're going. I want to be where you're going. When it comes to him saying, follow me and us replying, the cost seems to go way up. Or we, 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 have, we think it's a false choice. Here's what I mean. We think that Jesus calls me to pick up a cross and follow him. He calls me to pour my life out. But we don't see how everything else that we follow is asking and demanding and getting the same thing from us. Everything we follow, every endeavor, is asking and demanding of you, give me your life. Pour out your life. And so life is a very expensive thing. This is not, a, it's not something we can do on the cheap. We're always giving of ourselves. The question is, what's the return? What's the return? What's the return on, on uh, what, was it, what was the stat, uh, 3 billion hours of video games? What's the return to humanity for that? What's the return to your roommates for that kind of thing? Um, and that's the question. Why do we overestimate the cost of following Jesus but not see any cost. It's like we have eagle eyes for how much it's going to cost us to turn away from uh, the sin patterns that we are so familiar with because we're so skilled at it. We've been practicing it our whole lives. That seems like a stratospheric cost, something way up in the stratosphere. But then all of the other things we're already following seems like, yeah, it's not really a cost. I'm not paying anything for this. But you are. And, and maybe you've gotten into a corner in your life at some point, or maybe you're there right now where you've realized, oh my goodness, like, I'm stuck here. I was paying all along. And there's not much of me left. That's why I feel empty. That's why I feel hollow after pursuing these other things that don't really deliver what they ever say they will. Uh, and so we, do, we, we see how tall of an order it is to follow Jesus. And I'm not saying it's, it's not a big deal. It's not a, a costly following. I'm just saying all of this other stuff is too. So if your options are an easy life where I don't have to pay anything or a a, a super hard life where I'm, complete, I'm continually being asked to pour my life out. That's not your choice. Your choice is, do you want to pour your life out to things that will never give it back? Or do you want to pour your life out to the God who's poured out his life for you and guarantees what you receive back is exponentially greater than what you laid down? So are you going to pour out your life unto death or pour out your life unto greater life? That's, the, uh, that's what Jesus is talking about here. And I think it's an important thing for us to realize because I don't tend to think that way. Um, I, I think the way that we just talked about it. Here's what it looks like in real life. Um, we hesitate, just like these people did. We're slow-footed. It's like, uh, hold on, Jesus. 
I hear what you're asking from me in terms of uh, turning away from old patterns. I hear what you're asking me in terms of turning towards loving others. I hear what you're saying about spending time with you that I can kind of marinate in you and begin to smell like you and love like you and believe you. I get that. Uh, but at the same time, um, we, we hesitate. We like, what's the fine print? Let me read the fine print on this one. Um, that's one way. We avoid his call to deny ourselves. We find any loophole we can to kind of slither out of that. I do this. Are you fam- This is, you get this? You with me here? Or I'm putting myself out there and it's like, oh, no one else is on board here. I've just exposed myself for everybody. But this is a struggle for all of us. Or we say, uh, yes, Jesus, I want to go with you. But first let me, fill in the blank. First, let me have four years of fun at college because this is not, this isn't consequential time. This isn't serious time. I kind of get four years on the bench and then I get to get in the game. Oh, and he's like, no, no, no. Have you figured that out yet? Most of y'all probably figured that out. It's a big lie. It'll leave you empty if you think uh, college is four years where you're not in the game. Um, and then the other ways, uh, God, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I don't want it to bring disharmony into my family and so I can't talk about you with anybody else. Or, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me finish this fling with this person or this other thing. First let me do this. And it's, it's us strong-arming him and saying, first let me serve this master. First let me pour my life out to him or to her or to this. Uh, that's kind of what we're doing. And so uh, we've kind of already covered that, but we have eagle eyes for the cost of following Jesus. And we're, we're pretty dull when it comes to the cost of following everything else. In our lives. And Luke isn't trying to beat people up. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm, I'm aiming this kind of at myself as well. But Luke is helping us understand why we can become so slow-footed and clumsy when it comes to following Jesus. And I think, in a sense, this is encouraging because Jesus gets that his disciples have trouble following him. Which is why we have this passage. Um, and I think he's helping us kind of get eagle eyes for the cost of everything, but also... Uh, let, the, let following him taste sweet in our mouths. And so, kind of to wrap up that first point, have you ever considered the cost of the status quo? Have you considered the cost of your current patterns and habits and rhythms in life? Have you considered what life it's taking from you? Have you considered what life it's taking from your friends? What life it's, and vitality it's taking from your relationship with God? What is life as it is now currently demanding and costing you. Uh, That's an important first thing for us to see. And so the second thing is this, and this kind of flows directly out of that. Why do we keep floating back to these things so easily? Well, it's because we, we effortlessly, the things that we don't have to work or think about at all, the things that we just naturally slide back towards uh, are the things that we most uh, deeply love. You're familiar with Mumford and Sons. One of their uh, first albums had a, had a song on it called Awake My Soul. Brilliant lyrics on some of that, I think the, the most brilliant part of that song is where he says, where you invest your love, you invest your life. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. The things that we love are the things that we pour out our lives for. And I'm gonna, this, this does put back on the table all the things we've already mentioned in the past few minutes. It does bring back on the table all those little virtual pursuits that we have. And sometimes the ways our hearts do abuse that and do use it as an escape. Or do use it because it's more electric and exciting than a boring God. Or a a God we see as boring. 
But where we invest our love, we invest our lives. We pour out lives. So here's the question. Turn back to your blue sheet here. Where are the Samaritans investing their life? Samaritans and Jews had beef with each other. It was like Palestinians and Israelis, or right now, Russians and Ukrainians. They don't like each other. They're suspicious of each other. Uh, And so there's a little bit behind their rejection of Jesus as, wait, you're going to Jerusalem, the, the capital of the Jews? I don't think so. We're not following you. It was also this. The Samaritans already knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem because Jesus had begun talking about this. What was going to happen in Jerusalem is the Son of Man was going to be offered up, crucified, die, and be raised up. And so uh, what were they following that was costing them their life? What they were following was comfort, power, strength. Why would I want to follow a, weak, a seemingly weak, uh, seemingly boring or inconsequential uh, king, And so they clung tightly to what they were already pouring out their very life to, and that made them unavailable to Jesus. What about the guy who had to bury his dad? This was a big deal back then. Honoring your mother and your father were like the pinnacle of morality. If you were a good person, you took care of mom and dad. And when they died, that was your first priority. So what is that guy's kind of master that he's pouring out his life to that makes him unavailable to the call of Jesus? It's cultural norms. It's morality. It's dancing through the hoops of being a good person. And he, he was doing the right thing. But the, here's the question. Uh, are, the, are, 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 are following those rules more important when God himself is standing before you? And saying, you burying your father, that process could take up to a year because they would bury the body in the ground and then when the decay happened, they would get the bones, put them in an ossuary, and put those in a tomb. And so this could, this could be, Jesus, can, can you come back next year? And he, he's punting, he's procrastinating, he's pushing it off because something was more important than God himself on the spot. And then the last guy, let me go say goodbye to my family. It's a guy who wants to tie up loose ends. Hey, Jesus, uh, I really want to go with you. However, got some stuff to take care of back home. I'll get my people to call your people once it's taken care of. I got to go wrap up the family ties. I got to get my inheritance fixed and everything else. But it's like, it's a worldly rhythm of, it seems important. But again, when God himself comes near to you, does it reorder your priorities? Or do you cling to a pattern of life you've already learned and it makes us unavailable to him, deaf to him, blind to him, bored with him? Because this is God. Right? So we have three kind of sets of people who are rejecting uh, Jesus, him, or kind of punting, pushing off, saying, no, no, the cost you're asking from me competes with the cost this is asking from me, and I can't serve two masters, so I'm going to go this way. And that's kind of the battle that's happening in our hearts, right? Between two loves, between two calls to lay down our lives. And it's really reflexive. Uh, We don't even really think about it because of the Mumford & Sons thing. Where we invest our love, we invest our life. It's like you fall in love with something, you've given your life to it. You know this with romance or love, fall in love with someone, you literally on an altar say, I'm giving you my very life forever. What you love, you give yourself to. This will come in key in, in just a minute when we wrap up with the last point, what we love, we give our lives to. But let me ask you this real quick to kind of let what I'm just saying sink a little bit more deeply. What is easy as pie for us to obey and to follow in your life. What is so simple, knee-jerk, reflexive? It, it, we don't have to think about it. What patterns and ruts do we fall back into? Masters we fall back into serving that are demanding of us our life. 
conversely, what are, the, what are the specific things, the specific costs that make us flinch or hesitate or procrastinate or punt or strong-arm God the most? What are the specific things that we're like, yeah, but first... I'm going to have to rely on on Jesus and his spirit to bring those things to your mind. But are you you realizing the the, the competition in our hearts between those two things? The things that are so easy for us to obey, kind of competing masters, that Jesus is going to hold out his arm and say, do you really want to live? I'll help you turn. I'll help you leave that behind. And I'll, I'll be someone where you lay down your life and I give it back to you in spades. And so there's a lot of stuff, I mean, you could say, but, uh, but a lot of it we've covered. And so you could put it this, the, the point number two, positively you can say that following Jesus is a product of our love for him. Because if you invest your love in Jesus, you'll find your life more effortlessly pouring out towards him, wanting to be with him, wanting to follow him. And, and negatively or conversely, uh, uh, our lack of following him, our hesitation is a product of our love for other masters. So what does following Jesus even mean? We could say a lot here, but I'm going to keep it simple and short. Following Jesus means going where he is going. And here comes the key part of the entire passage. And it's so short, you might have missed it. Because if you, don't, if you haven't read Luke's whole story, it's like coming into Lord of the Rings in the second movie without any context. And you can't pick up on the gigantic little markers or hinges or pivots in the story. Uh, the little, the little uh, phrase, he says it twice. In verse 51, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Then again, he says it uh, in, in verse 53. They didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. This is the hinge, the turning point in the entire Gospel of Luke. This is the fulcrum on which the entire thing hangs, is that little phrase. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem like a paratrooper setting his face towards Berlin to take Hitler down. Or a quarterback or, or a defensive uh, player setting his face towards the quarterback to go take him out. This is, a, this is mission. This is duty. This is charge the hill. Set his face resolutely going this way and won't be distracted or moved by anything. If you read the next... Uh, the next uh, there's 24 chapters minus 9. If you, need, if you read the difference of the Gospel of Luke, see how I got out of that math problem? If you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that he keeps saying, and on his way to Jerusalem. What was he going to Jerusalem for? I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but uh, we're going to end by talking about this. It's what Jasmine read earlier. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, what was prophesied is the prophets gazed into the future to the Son of Man, the Son of God, who would come to rescue His people. This is what He described that Son of God as. It's in Isaiah 50, and Jasmine read it earlier. I'll, I'll reread it really quickly. He says, Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And then He talks about, Jasmine was, was talking about, This servant, this son of God is the one whose beard is plucked out. The one whose back is ripped apart. The one who is raised up on a cross. That is what Jesus was doing in Jerusalem. And guess what? It wasn't accidental. It wasn't plan B because his plans to take over the world in power failed. 
ever since the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past conspired and schemed how to save a people for themselves. Family. This is the way it was always going to be. Never another way than the second person of the Trinity becoming man and being one for whom Old Testament prophecies were written. He is the one whose beard is plucked out. He is mocked. He is ridiculed. His back is filleted. And he is raised up as the cursed one, the one abandoned by God. That was only ever plan A. There were no other plans. And so here's my point. How committed is Jesus? Is he just a, a, a wannabe Messiah who kind of got himself sideways with the government or the, or the authorities? No. He set his face towards Jerusalem to pour himself out for his enemies. This is where we need to take all of our, our guilt, our shame, our struggle with following Jesus. What I'm about to say is where we need to take that, bring all of that stuff, that nasty stuff, and sit under this waterfall and listen and soak this up. This is the motivator. This is the fuel. This is the catalyst for following Jesus. You have to start here. Knowing where he was going and, and seeing how he went. He never hesitated. He never flinched. Moving towards your need. He never had sticker shock. He read the fine print. He knew exactly what he was getting into. Exactly what the cost would be. What the timetable would be to set you right with God and everybody else forever. To take your sin. To take your shame. To take your struggle. And to give you space to grow. He knew exactly what it was going to cost. And he didn't flinch. He set his face towards you. He set his face towards your deepest need and your interests. And he ran straight at him. He wasn't reluctant to jump into the hellstorm of what all that would involve. He didn't consider his own interests more highly than your interests. But he put your interests first. Which is why Paul says, have this mind amongst you. Have the mind of Christ amongst you who did not consider himself uh, above us, but became our servant. Did you hear that? God serving you unflinchingly, unhesitatingly, without any reluctance or rolling his eyes or sighing or, oh, Father, I will redeem your people. I will gather these people, you, back into the Father, Son, and Spirit forever. Life, joy. I'll do it, Father, but first, wait, let me go. There wasn't any competition with Jesus. There weren't other masters running around that were demanding of him his life. And just like for us, where you invest your life, where you invest your love, you invest your life, so it is with God. Where God invests his love, he invests his life. That's why Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Because he was investing his love on his people, and that meant him pouring out his life for his people. And also... Just like point number two is true for us, point number, two, true is to, point number two is true for God. What does Jesus move most effortlessly towards? I'm not saying it wasn't hard. It was infinitely hard. We will have no idea of how much suffering and pain he went through. I'm not saying it wasn't hard. I'm saying it was effortless. He didn't have this torn heart. Do I want to do it? Do I not? Let me get a flower and poke off the petals and see. Do I love my people or do I not? Am I going to go die for them and stand under the hellstorm of God's justice or not? He didn't do that. He didn't quibble. He didn't pause. He ran. 
straight to Jerusalem and all that that meant. And so for Jesus, he most, what, uh, he most effort, effortlessly follows what he most deeply loves, which is redeeming his people. Putting you back together is not something that God causes God, God's eyes to roll. It's not something that causes him to sigh. The Trinity doesn't slander and gossip about you because of how long it's taking for you to look like God if you're a Christian. Here's where we end. And this is the difference in you hating God forever or loving him. If you do not, at your core, see how God poured his life out for you, see how he moved towards your interests, put you before himself. If you don't see that deep down, then if, when you hear the call to follow Jesus and be a disciple, you will hate God for it. Because you will see, it's like the general on the battlefield who everybody, all the troops know, this general would never die for us. He puts us in harm's way. He asks us to do things that he would never do. Nobody follows that. Or if they do, they hate following him. And, and some of us, we're good disciples, but we're not alive. We don't know God. We're, we, have, we have very good ears for hearing all of the commands, and we, we're deaf to all of the places where he says, I'm coming for you. So Jesus isn't the general who sends you into harm's way, places he wouldn't go. He's the general that all of the, all of the soldiers know, I will, I will go to the mat for this guy. I'll charge the hill for this guy. I'll leave it all on the battlefield. I'll lay down my life for this general because I know he did or would do the same for me. Those are the generals we hear about in the history books. Everybody knew this guy will pour it all out for me. Then following Jesus into hard places, difficult places, places where you will lose your life can become joyful, can become an electric, exciting mission that's a lot more exciting than Call of Duty. Which is more exciting to us? Which is more interesting to us? And so did you make sure you hear that. Don't start trying to follow Jesus Don't start trying to run after him until you've seen him run after you. Don't start trying to pick up his his interest and, and, and do that stuff until you've seen him do it for you. And that's the gospel. If that doesn't make sense to you, if it doesn't move you in some way, let's talk. Because it's supposed to. I'll finish with this quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you got the email uh, about what we'd be talking about tonight, I included that in there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany in the 1920s, uh, 30s and 40s. And so uh, I think he was um, probably about 40 years old when he wrote this. He was executed in one of Hitler's concentration camps because he wouldn't turn on Jesus, because he knew Jesus never and never would turn on him. Uh, before he was killed, he had written some of these books. Uh, before he was imprisoned, he had written a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I highly recommend it to you if you haven't read it already. But he says this, when Jesus calls a person to himself, he bids him come and die. When Jesus calls a person to himself, he bids him to come and die. But he goes on. He says, this grace that God freely offers us is costly because it calls us to follow. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus, the Jesus who ran to Jerusalem for you. It's costly because it costs a person their life. 
but it's grace because it gives you the only true life to ever be found. What an exchange. It's costly because it cost God the life of his son, but it's grace because God didn't reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. Don't sacrifice for God until you've seen him sacrifice for you. He doesn't want you to do that. That's legalism. That's religion. It's death. It will kill you. See what Jesus has done for you. And then pray for his grace to continually, daily take up your cross. It's a process. That's why he said daily. It's a waking up every morning. Jesus, help me to see following you as better and more interesting and more compelling than any of these other pursuits I'm on. Help me to take up my cross and pour out my life for you, the one who continually pours out your life for me. If you want to unpack this further, talk about it more, do it in your small groups, do it at Village Inn, come talk to me after, let's get coffee, whatever you want to do. Uh, But let's close in prayer at this point. Lord Jesus, we do uh, thank you for the way that you have loved us. We do thank you that you are not like all of the other gods of other religions, all of the other uh, quote-unquote gods who always demand of their people everything while giving nothing. And you are the God who has come to dislodge us from being stuck, dislodge us from guilt, dislodge us from estrangement from you. You have gone to the mat for us. And that is the only way it makes sense for you to say to us, come and follow me, take up your cross, die, and be raised up to new life, life worth having, life worth giving yourself for. Please help us, Jesus, because what Morgan said earlier is also true of us, and we need you to help us lift the cross daily to follow you and to leave all of the other pursuits we have. We ask this in your name.